welcome to Jack Theology. My name is Dr. Matt Murphy, and I'm with my friend, Dr. Kevin Young. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Good to be here. I am uh, wearing, with pride, my Michigan Yeah, I see you. Shirt. I see you repping. If I, if I were to rep any clothes, it would be Alabama football, and this is not the season to rep Alabama football yes, clothing. Yeah. So, uh, so, so you go on with Michigan, man. Uh, yeah, well, now you... Uh, you Bama fans know what it feels like for the rest of us. Well, I, I was a Bama fan long before uh, Saban came along, so I remember <laughs> I remember the rise and fall of uh, really every team. You know, has has rise and fall of dynasties. You know, they start, they end. You enjoy it while the ride lasts, and you know if you're if you're in the dumps for a few years, just hold on. At some point, things will come back your way. Yeah. So I got to take my son to a basketball game last night. So that was exciting. Michigan was in our area in Brooklyn. So I was able to do that. Um, but I uh, wanted to talk, we wanted to talk about today um, eschatology, which is just a big fancy theological word for what we view and how we believe about like how the world ends uh, essentially. And so I want to give three views i'll give a general overview kevin can can jump in. you can jump in at any moment um three major views on, on the end times from a biblical perspective uh and then we'll have we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about how that plays itself out in our culture why what you believe about the end times i think dictates a lot of how we live so the first one is the pre-millennial view which I, i'm assuming kevin and i both grew up believing this we definitely went to a pre-millennial college yeah my independent baptist fundamental bible believing church background was was very pre-millennial god is god is getting us out of here as as soon as as quickly as possible and this is the classic it made it was made popular by left behind series which turned into movies with kirk cameron where if you don't believe in jesus you get left behind so the the pre-millennial is that jesus comes uh, raptures his church, all those who believe in him, gets them out of the world. And then, you know, there's a bunch of tribulations and hard times that the church doesn't have to go through. And then Christ comes and reigns for a thousand years. So it's pre-millennial, meaning that Christ comes before the millennial reign and, and raptures his church. Um, but those are left of, behind movies. I mean, those were pretty, those were pretty. I was talking to somebody like last week who still is, it's like triggered, you know, nightmares, has has like mental issues because of those left behind movies i mean yeah unfortunately that's what a lot of non-church people think we most every church person believes about well i think times. yeah i think you're right i think that's a good point and it shaped in a lot of ways i think it even shaped church people's view of revelation and and scripture you know very much like concreted a lot of things that in people's minds were abstract i'm like oh well that that's the way it must be wow Maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, um, it comes from the reading. All these views come from the reading from Revelation 20, generally, I think 19 and 20. So it's really how you interpret that. And premillennials, um, they would be a literal, literal translation of that view. Um, then there's the postmillennial view and the amillennial view who take more of a not as literal of a, of a, of a reading of that passage um and so the post-millennial kind of view is that 
once everyone on earth has heard, um, you know, once they establish the righteous kingdom and everyone has an opportunity to hear, then Christ's reign will come. Essentially, their belief is the church actually, the work the church does in the world will dictate when Christ returns uh, for the millennial reign. So once, you know, 99% of the world is Christian, then Christ will then reign. Um and uh, then there's the amillennial view, uh, which is becoming more popularized these days by N.T. Wright and some others, where a kingdom is inaugurated at Christ's resurrection. There's a new kingdom. It's it's already happening. Christ is reigning on high. So amillennial means there's no literal thousand-year reign. It's just uh, Christ is reigning now. And so there's this already but not yet kingdom. Christ is already there. We can see evidence of the kingdom now. Um, and then also I would say this view definitely believes what we do now is part of Christ's kingdom and affects all of eternity. And so they're kind of semiotically together. Um, so those are the three uh, biggest views. Yeah, so know. I feel like um, it's interesting, you know, talking about the rise and fall of sports teams and, and dynasties and seasons. I, I feel like maybe I'm wrong here, correct me, but, you know, for a really long time within Christianity, or at least evangelical Christianity, pre-millennialism, you know, that God is going to come back, set up his reign, and that reign is going to be a thousand years, was kind of the predominant view. But it feels like over the last few years, that one has kind of faded away of being in vogue in this, you know, as you said, N.T. Wright and, and millennial that we're already kind of in this, this time that it's not literal. And now especially which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about here in a bit, this post-millennial idea that the world has to be Christian completely before the reign of Christ begins, you know, is resonating a lot with Christian nationalists. And so it feels like there's a lot of um, changing dynamics in people's eschatologies. And it's not as though people are stepping away from revelation and stepping away from talk about end times. Uh, they're actually like doubling down us becoming more of a conversation. It's becoming more integral to people's theologies, which is kind of weird because I thought left behind, you know, people were like, whoa, let's kind of, let's kind of step back from that. That's a little crazy. Maybe we focused a little too much on end times, but now it feels like we're just like all in on end times, but from different vantage points. Yeah. I, I mean, I, just from my own denominational perspective, like our denomination is dropping the pre-millennial uh, oh, requirement. Really? Doctrine. Yeah. First of all, first of all, so there was a requirement. That's that's my first that's my first surprise. But and there I, I mean that's okay, for a denomination to drop a requirement or to make a change in theology is um, I it, it's unheard of. Uh, yeah. Well I think, you know, because there's been a rise from the ranks, there's been a lot of us. I, I would say I'm an amillennialist. Uh, much a, a huge rise in that view of scripture, um, and then also I think, as you said, postmillennialism is is getting more popularized as well. And and so, yeah, I think the premillennial has lost its popularity. Um, and so, kind of just a, a generic. I was thinking about this, like what does these eschatologies kind of lead to like when I think of premillennialism, um, they, they don't, at least when I was growing up and part of premillennialism, when I was like gung ho on all of that, 
um, I had no motivation for anything really to do in this world. So like recycling wasn't important to me. Like there was no reason to take care of this world because it's all going to be burned up in the end. Yeah, right? God's going to burn it all down anyway. So why? Why, why protect or yeah. keep it? I'm, I'm helping. I'm helping Jesus by destroying creation. Yeah, and, and there's there was no reason to help in, in justice issues as well. Uh, it, it wasn't that important. What was important was to get people to pray a prayer. Like we were always just looking to the, you know, the end, the last thousand years. So we got we wanted to get as many people to pray the prayer as possible. So in areas of injustice, like we would, you know, maybe enter into that, but the whole point was not to help them. It was to just get them to pray a prayer, right? To, okay, they're saved. They're, they're good. We got them saved for eternity. Um, and I think, and so then the post mill, you kind of hinted at it with the, the Christian nationalists. They want to take over really the world for Jesus, like the crusaders did so that everyone would know and, and every, the whole world would become a, a Christianized, a righteous world um right. yes i, I, think I mean it, i guess as i'm thinking it's really kind of opposite of pre-millennial you know i i guess strategically the theologically i've always kind of thought of these as just being variations of the same thing but in a lot of ways they're doing the opposite to the world of what we pre-millennials used to do you know it's and I, the world's going to go away anyway so why take care of it why worry about it whereas the the post millennials are like no the world has to has to become that version of of a christian nation a a garden of eden i guess in some ways that's ruled by christians before the end times can come so it's it's fascinating that it's yeah and there's definitely a shift i I think where they 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 can be in cahoots and i think where post millennials can can bring premillos into the fold is we can get more people to pray the prayer to be in that thousand year reign at the end, right? If we've all take if we've taken over the world, we can get them. And I've seen that um, online and in discussions, and it, it's fascinating to me because they are essentially leaving that premillennial view to enter into that postmillennial view. But the kind of the bridge into that is like, hey, we're going to get more people to to pray this prayer. Um, and so, yeah. And then the amillennials, I think is completely opposed. Uh, we, I would say, don't feel that pressure, uh, of getting people to pray a prayer. We don't feel that pressure of having to take over the world for Jesus. Uh, we just want to live and, and reveal the kingdom of God that's already here, so, uh, but we haven't yet seen it in its fullness. So, okay, I'm probably betraying my knowledge on this issue, which I shouldn't do, but I don't mind looking like an idiot. Uh, whenever I was, you know, in college and seminary, the seminaries and colleges that I were in, that I was in did not take all millennialism seriously at all. And so I, I think our training on it was nothing more than a sentence in the theology books. So I know very little about all millennialism, but what it sounds like to me, it is, is it's, it's kind of a, a kingdom that is both now and not yet. Is, is that, is yeah. that a good description of it? Or, or how would you describe the difference really foundationally? What, what makes all millennialism unique and attractive uh, to, to people who may have concern with the premillennial idea of, rapture of Jesus coming and destroying everything Christians getting the hell out of here 
and getting the hell out of hell <laughs> and Christian nationalism on, on the flip side. So what's the, what's, what is it that really makes all millennial attractive to folks who don't feel well, like they fit in other, yeah, other mousetraps? For me, it's just the idea that Christ is already reigning. He's already on the throne. Um, in that through his church, he wants to, he's inaugurated his kingdom. And so the church, uh, lives that inaugurated kingdom out into the world and invites people into this third way, uh, that's different than kingdoms of the world, right? A lot of what we sensed Christian nationalism, I think is an amillennial view. It's, uh, uh, no, we just live out the ways of Jesus. Uh, we don't try to take over the world through power because we already have all the power. We don't need power because Christ already has it. And so through the church, we, we see the kingdom of God already here. Already like here in advance. Love, okay. Through, so a kingdom now is now and not yet. So whenever Jesus makes the statement multiple times in Scripture, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, uh, he, he, that plays into this all millennial idea that the kingdom may not be fully here, but is here and in effect now without, without any need for interaction or involvement from us necessarily. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously we see in revelation, you know, and even our own world, the tribulations of life. So there's not, there's this not yet. It's not fully here yet. Like, the fullness of that kingdom because we still see the pain we still see you know agony and stress you know all those things um evil in the world and and so there's this already not yet but christ calls us to bring the kingdom to bear in those in those places of evil and justice so all millennials are more, more motivated to enter into social justice issues to 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 try to make things that are not right, right, um, through the living of Christ's kingdom to, to show that Christ's kingdom is here already. And, and so that's the beauty, I think, of Christ is he's called us feeble humans to participate in his kingdom making. And it's and so and I guess that that could be similar to a postmillennial view, but they, they want to use the power of the, the world. They're, they're not as concerned with injustice <laughs> there to them. Injustice is things not looking like the script, what they think the scriptures say. So for example, um, what got me thinking about this was like all everybody up in arms about the government codifying, you know, same sex marriage. Uh, a lot of the Christian nationalists on there, like to them, that is super injustice because that goes against the whole post-millennial view because their view of scripture is this is a sin. And so in, in, in a Christ kingdom, what we're heading towards, this should not be allowed. And so for them, that's a loss. Um, you know, for all millennials, those, those that have that view, like even if we think that's a sin or not, that's not the, the issue. We, we would say though, what that doesn't affect anything that we're called to do as Christians. If, if the government codifies that and, and makes it law that, you know, homosexuals can get married, whatever it has no bearing on how we operate in the world and so i think there's that huge disconnect um based on eschatology in the church yeah well and you know and i mean there's a foundational error there i think for us to think that we would know what christ's kingdom would look like were, were it in effect i mean this idea you know that you say you know 
gay marriage is or is not, you know, going to be a part presupposes that we know what Christ's kingdom will, will look like on on that issue. And uh, you may say, well, I'm pretty certain on this issue, but but what about the ten other things? You know, about social justice or or the poor or the role of women or or you know all of these things that the church has disagreed upon. You know, some of them for literally 2,000 years and are, are still in disagreement on whose Christ or whose version of Christ or Christ's kingdom is, is the one that will be implemented. So, you know, it presupposes if we're setting it up for Jesus, is he even going to want it? Yeah. 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 I think that's the flaw in all of it, right? Because cause then it, it, especially the post-millennial view, is it... Uh, it puts it on our shoulders to dictate what that kingdom looks like. You say, well, I know uh, what I know what it looks like. I know what's right. Well, the guy who's sitting right next to you in the same church pew doesn't agree with with, with exactly what it's going to look like. Uh, I don't buy it. No. It, and in the premillennial view, it's, well, well, we're just, we just not going to deal with that, whatever. Like John MacArthur, just... Don't just do not shut down my church where I can I can scream at everybody that they're sinners and they're going to hell and they need to pray this prayer, you know. Um, and he writes a letter to the governor telling him he's going to hell and he should, you know, repent and pray the prayer. Like that that's pre millennials whole focus. Like that's that's their thing. And so then they to me they look they look like dicks. It's like we're just telling everyone in the world they're going to hell unless they do this one thing, right? that that they haven't done yet and we've got we've got the inside scoop on eternal life you know and if you don't believe us you know you're dead do you i mean do you i i don't know i just you know and part of part of i think what breaks down for me for the pre-mill pre-millennials you know the left behind rapture crowd and the post-millennial christian national crowd is uh it all hinges on a very literal but very different interpretation of Revelation and Daniel, books that uh, are, were not intended to be taken literally. And nobody believes in a literal interpretation of these of these books. You know, I said that on, online the other day. It's like nobody nobody believes that Jesus is literally, even if Armageddon occurs, that Jesus is literally going to come with a flaming sword as a tongue. You know, coming out of his his mouth, no one literally believes. You know, in this lamb with with seven eyes, like like you you cannot. No one takes it literally. They pick and choose, you know, what is literal, or they pick and choose how they literally translate symbols, uh, and you just that's where I feel like pre mill and and post mill really breaks down and where there's some brilliance in, in looking at, at an all-mill view is um, we're reading these scriptures in ways that they were not intended to be read. If you understand anything about Jewish apocalyptic literature at the time and why Revelation was written and how the original readers would have read and understood it, very, very different than how we read and understand it. Um, and it's messed up. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the jack theology about this. And I think in the end, 
uh, premillennialism is going to lose a lot of its um, luster, especially premillennialism, uh, because because no one yeah no one reads Revelation literally, and the premillennial view is all grounded in the literal, literally the literal <laughs> translation of that. And in fact, the early church uh, fathers, when they were discussing the canon. The comprom- like they did not the, the last book to make it into the Bible was Revelation. Right? Yeah, I've heard that. So that yeah, okay, so that's half true. The church, yeah, half the church did not want I think it was uh, the West did not want Revelation in the canon and the East did, or maybe I got it backwards, but whatever. Half the church did not want Revelation in it's the like compromise. An West thing, like a sharks and jets yeah. kind of thing. We will include it in the in the Bible, in the canon but it can only be used as like a psalm book, like in worship, like to sing and, and as like a poetry book <laughs> that they would not be taken literally. Like you that was imagine the singing about a seven eyed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. googly, googly eyed lamb and, and a seven headed dragon and singing about Jesus with a sword of fire flaming out of yeah. his. I'm, I'm trying to imagine those songs, Matt. I know. They but must like, have been epic songs. <laughs> But the Chris key Tomlin's going to want these. This is a poem. This is not literal. This is a you know a metaphor. Wait until Hillsong, Wait until Bethel gets a hold of those. Yeah, Bethel. They, Bethel just announced. Uh, speaking of pre-millennial, probably I'm assuming they're pre-millennial. Uh, you know, because there's not enough churches in New York City, so they have to come and save us here in the New York City metro uh, area. It's it's a Sin City, right? So it needs, last I read, there's forty thousand churches in the New York City metropolitan area. Those but, aren't churches; those are dens of iniquity. Those are those are apostate churches. There there were seven churches in Revelation, but there were four thousand of them in New York. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we we need Bethel Church out here. So I guess Bethel's coming for us to save us all. Um, hilarious, but. Yeah, the the revelation. But I mean, that's driven though. The truth that's driven by theologies, which is you know the point that you made in the very beginning is our eschatology, how we think about end times, how we think about death or or the future beyond us, literally drives every single thing we do in in our worship, in our practice of our faith, and and our theology. We we give thought and credence to our eschatology, our end times thinking, probably the least. But I think you're right that it impacts the way we do things and the way we think about everything uh, theologically and in our worship and in our practice more than anything else. Yeah. Which yeah, I know it, I, I just it, like it, left turned you out of out of the book of Revelation. So you, you could go back to that. But it just struck me how no. true what you said was. I mean, there's so which, connected, which is driving which is driving what Bethel is doing and is driving the reasoning that they're giving behind putting a church, you know, in New York City where there are thousands of other churches. Well, that's because of the way they view those other churches and end time theologies that's driving them to do that and driving the reasoning behind why they're saying they're doing it. Correct. Um, you know, they they have the way. I mean, I also think it's the old seven mountain theology, very Pentecostal, 
right? Dominionism. And it, yeah. I guess it's kind of post yeah, There's a resurgence in that, Seven Mountain theology, dominionism. Yeah. It's everywhere. The more I'm, the more I'm um, thinking about it, the more I'm, I'm recognizing that maybe it's, um, maybe it's post-millennial too, like to take over the world for Jesus, to see the end come. Um, a lot of the Pentecostal leanings, like our denomination is funny. Um, when I was at Cedarville, I mean, our denomination is very, um, has been very, uh, pre-mill. And when I was at Cedarville, one of my professors was giving, he was, it was a class on end times and he was actually giving the different views that we just kind of did here. Um, and you know, Cedarville was a pre-millennial college. And so he's showing an example of what he thought was post-millennialism. It was actually the president of our denomination given a sermon <laughs> and it was very post-millennial, like yeah. the sermon that he was giving. Uh, but I had to tell him, I was like, well, our, technically our denomination, that's the president of my denomination and we're pre-millennial. Um, but I, 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 even as a college student, I found that fascinating. Like, well, uh, there was, there is an, an element of, of like wanting to take over the world so that Christ will come. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't think, think these necessarily break down into perfect categories either. You know, once you, once you get into things, um, <laughs> theology professors and students will try to neatly define the lines between these ideas of end times. But the truth is there's a lot of blur and a lot of gray. And I can definitely see how Bethel and Charismatics and Pentecostals in one sense, especially historically, could very much be pre-mill in a rapture. Jesus is coming back, get the world ready. But then you kind of demote that rapture and tribulation idea. And then you can very much see a way where, oh, well, let's just postmo makes a lot of sense let's just create a christian kingdom here um before before christ comes yeah well and behind all of this i think well i mean i guess i should nuance it i mean not everyone is like this but i, I think your average average person um, just just wants like a better life. They just want that life to the fullest that Christ said He came to give us. Um, you know, we we a lot of humans we act in these ways because we do. We want Christ's kingdom because it it does look beautiful. Um, I think others are probably in it for different reasons. Like they want power. Like Jesus, you know, his disciples probably was it. Was it James and John, the two that were asking who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Like they were at that point, I think they were Christian nationalists. They thought they were going to be Christian nation, right? A Christian nationalist nation and and take over the world. Like who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus says, no, uh, the greatest in my kingdom are those who lay down their life uh, for others. Um, and I'm not seeing that from any post-millennial Christian nationalists. Um, I'm seeing a lot of James and Johns who, who, want, who want to be the greatest in the kingdom who want to, to have all the power and authority. Like I think Bethel is that like, so you, in Hillsong too, like you, you think, you know, from California, from Australia, like that, you know, New York city, right. And you've got pastors that have been on the ground for decades. You know, uh, one of the guys, I don't know if you follow him on Facebook, Bruce Bernard, like he's a, I think he's a Nazarene pastor. He's been in, He's been in New York City for 30 years doing great work, you know, and, and so you think you could do New York City ministry better than him. Um, 
But they do because, well, I'm the greatest and we're going to enact the kingdom because this is what, um, you know, I have to do it our way, that kind of thing. Um, excuse it. I, I've been caught up in that. Um, and I, I was, you sit around and you think no one else gets it, but I get it or our organization gets it. So they need what our organization has to offer. Um, the first church plan I was a part of is uh, we said we were going to rebuild the church in Hamilton. Uh, and all the churches in Hamilton, which was probably a dozen, were all ticked off at us. <laughs> what are you talking about? We've been here for the whole time doing great work. <laughs> we just said it all sucks and we're going to fix it, you know. And I think we had that kind of arrogant attitude that James and John came to Jesus with. And, and uh, you see a lot of that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I totally, I totally agree. It, it, it's religious colonialism, uh, and it's, <laughs> it says a lot about us as, um, it, it says a lot about our theologies, but I think it says a lot more about our heart condition, um, than it does probably, probably anything else. And I think, you know, the, the issues with revelation and end times are, are the same things. The way we view these things say a lot about, um, say a lot about our theologies, but say a lot more about, about us, you know, as you were talking about James and John, um, and, and this idea of, you know, wanting to live in, in a better world. And, and I, I think that's true, you know, for a lot of people, they, they vote the way that they do. They would say they want us to be a Christian nation because they want to live in a world that resonates, um, deeply with them. But, I, I think too we have to admit that we live in a pluralistic society, which is not bad. Um, secularism may be bad, but pluralism is is not bad. And and other people want to live happily as well. And so whenever we enforce our own theologies and and the own the tenets of our Christian faith upon not just ourselves, but enforce them upon everybody else through the legal system and, and through the laws of the land, then we're saying, it, I want to live in a place where I can happily be at peace, but I'm insisting that you can't if you disagree. Uh, and that's just not the way of Jesus. Um, it's just, it's not the way of Jesus to, to, to put my needs, to put myself first and you last. Uh, Jesus clearly said his kingdom is an upside down kingdom where the last shall be first. If we want to follow Jesus, make a world a better place for other people to live in, even if they disagree with your theologies. Put yourself last. Yeah. Um, you got me thinking about the the irony, the hypocrisy. So I grew up, we heard a lot you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? So I'm giving the middle finger to that statement in my mind right now. And I almost, I almost did it. But like I almost just, so, oh, so, I hate yeah. that, I hate so that line. You, oh, I, I don't know what you, you think of it. I don't know what you're going to say about it, but I hate it. Yeah. Well, you hate. Cause I, yeah, yeah. I so heard the same thing, Matt. We hate the, we hate, we like the person, but we hate their belief system is what we're really saying. So what if somebody came to the Christian and said, I like you, but I hate your belief system. They'd be like, well, I am my belief system. 
duh. I mean, that, that's how people are separate. like in the pro-lesbian society. You cannot two. separate it. And especially the issue of homosexuality, you cannot separate it. So if you're saying I hate the sin but love the, the sinner or whatever it is, <laughs> you're actually saying you hate the, that person. That's what they hear. Well, and I've, and I've, I've, I've often thought it's heresy because you're divorcing – who somebody is from from their spirit, or like you, to divorce those oh, two things yeah. is uh, is actually an is an ancient heresy. And so I just say, you realize that's heresy, right? To people, whenever they say love the sin, hate the sinner. Yeah. Wait, but what? we wouldn't we wouldn't take it we wouldn't take it ourselves. Like no, well, I, I I like you, but I hate your belief system. Like what? Then you hate me, right? That's that'll be our reaction, and yet that's what we teach. That's what we teach in our in our churches. Um, yeah, I, I think so. So that's that's one issue. I mean, you brought up this week a lot about the the transgender issue, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's what it's transgender awareness week, which uh, gives but me I, the op- I think gives me the opportunity to just say the word transgender. And anytime a pastor says the word transgender, you know, it's just going to go. Poof. Yeah, but that again, like our eschatology. I think how we view the end times. Uh, dictates how we respond to that in many ways. Um, well, you know, a premillennial, we're not going to, what doesn't, you know, in some sense, doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, morality, you know, there's a morality thing, but if we can just get that person to pray a prayer, then then they'll be fixed in the kingdom. They'll have their right body. And, and in some sense, they, they don't want them to change their body because it's like, well, this is who you're born to be. That's who you're going to be for eternity. Uh, so why confuse yourself now? And it's yeah, all there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons, and, and some of the reasons are some of the reasons to question or be concerned or to even be against transgender um, need to be considered and, and may even be compelling. Um, so, yeah, I think there's various various things that are at play there. Um, I think the post-millennials, well, this isn't, God only created two genders, right? So in our, in God's kingdom, there's only going to be two genders. Uh, and the gender you were born with is, that's it. Um, I think it's a little bit more volatile from the post-millennial side of things, a little bit more reactionary uh, because that's not like their vision for what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And I think the amillennial like view would be we we just enter into people's lives and, and and meet them where they're at and and help them process their emotions, help them you know meet Jesus in the midst of that. I I, I had a professor who I think is very amillennial. It's like, well, if if they identify right now as if, if they were born a woman, now they identify as a man. Then I, he's like, I think Jesus would address them as a man, and so you know, we had a transgender in our church. And so he advised me to do that. And actually, uh, I, I thought that was the best way. He was right. Like meet them exactly where they're at, address them, um, who, who they identify as. I think that's the most loving thing we could do. Um, I recently read a book on this and a transgender wrote a book about transgenderism in the church. And, uh, he was saying just that, like if a transgender is identifying a certain way, call them by that name. Don't even ask what their birth name was, you know, um, meet them exactly where they're at in relationship. And I think that's the healthiest way to go about it. Uh, I don't, 
Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some uh, I, I guess issues that you know Christians have brought up around like children and that sort of thing. When you have those conversations, I think you and I both would say and believe that like people are born transgender they're born intersex i think uh, jesus says that in fact dale pastor dale has been going back and forth with me pastor dale (laughs) Uh, about transgenderism Uh, people don't even realize that jesus said that like some are born as intersex um and i think the latest data says one in one or one to two out of a hundred babies that are born um, are born transgender or intersex. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to, to, to just say God didn't create this, this is, this is not, this is all a sin. I think it, it is really looking at things the wrong way. Well, and I want to kind of go back to, to something that you said that I thought it just kind of blew my mind and I just wanted to reframe it and see if this is kind of what you were thinking. Cause so the, the premillennial rapture, just get people saved, you know, get people out of hell mentality, uh, that I grew up with. I heard a lot of preaching about cultural issues and, and homosexuality and, and transgender wasn't really a thing then. So there wasn't necessarily preaching about that, but you know, all of these kind of cultural issues. Um, but I had never thought about it through the lens of the idea was essentially come to Jesus and then these things will change. So the first step in the process was coming to Jesus and then the church and good preaching and, and the Bible and being in church and understanding what truth was and what that looked like lived out would change you. Essentially, I think in context with the spirit, though we wouldn't have framed it that way because we would have feared looking charismatic or Pentecostal by, but, but that was the thing, you know, get saved, get out of hell, come to Jesus and, and your life will, will change as those things happen. Um, maybe oftentimes radically and immediately at the salvation moment was the thought or at least the hope, but post-millennial seems to see a real change in that where it's the, the power of government, the power of the empire, the power of Christians being wielded in the community and in the nation will force all of those things to come through. True, through legislation, uh, we will force uh, law that creates what is right and wrong in transgender, that creates what is right or wrong in, in marriage. And so, I, I had never considered this. Shift in the predominant Christian perspective, and I'm wondering if it's because it failed that we have decades of time spent in evangelical Christianity preaching salvation gets you out of hell and cures your gayness, cures your desire for abortive care cures your transgender feelings and we realize after decades and decades and decades that either it wasn't happening fast enough that culture wasn't changing or that people came to Jesus but saw Jesus and their faith even though they were maturing spiritually on paper they looked different 
than we did in yeah. a lot of ways. And we thought, to hell with that. Let's just enforce it through law so that we don't have to see it. And I'm wondering if this is why I, I just as you were talking, I'm wondering if this is why we're seeing this huge shift where premillennial rapture just get people to pray a prayer folks are now shifting to this pack the Supreme Court mm -hmm. <laughs> deny elections if they're for people that we disagree you know with uh, spiritually and let's just make this a Christian nation where everybody has to live the way I want them to even if they're not a Christian yeah, that's a good insight. Um, there's definitely a shift, like in anger. Like, I guess this past election, they they found through polling that and data that a lot of Christians voted uh, for these states that were trying to make it law and le always legal to have an abortion, right? And a lot of Christians uh, voted for that, and so like a lot of these. Uh, leaders in in, our, in the political realm and also in the church who kind of are on the on the on their soapbox on pro-life are confused like what's happened and i think i think you're you hit it on the head it's not working like the just preaching the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement <laughs> and premillennialism is not getting them what they want and so now it's like well, we got to take it over now. Uh, we just got to make it law, even if no one agrees with it. Um, I, yeah, I think it's true. And it, there's definitely a shift happening to post-millennialism. I think the eschatology is, of the future is just going to be this, either this amillennial, inaugurated kingdom uh, viewpoint or a post-millennial viewpoint. I think so we're going to see this huge, like, we're going to see this yeah. huge fight between those two. And so I think that's where the fight is, is like, as I was thinking about it and our interactions with people on, on Twitter, as we engage Jack theology, it's almost like I just something I'm thinking about. How do we engage in those discussions around theology, around eschatology, um, rather than just like the issues of the day? Like, because it's almost like we're talking past each other. Like, you know, uh, Pastor Dale yesterday, I saw the same tweet you tweeted me, like, you know, homosexuality isn't genetic or something like that and that's like how do you even how do you even respond to that like, how do you so, so now you don't just have jacked theology you have a jacked understanding of medical science yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is by far the dumbest thing i've ever said you have you have now proved yourself an idiot in two major <laughs> categories theology and med what 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 are you i just yeah well, and we talked a lot about sexuality stuff, but even racism is another one like that. Um, we we don't we we don't want to enter into injustice with racism. We don't even want to admit it because, um, well, that would say that our way of doing things, what we deem as as the way to get Christ to come back, is has has been wrong somehow. And so that's why I think there, there's never going to be an addressing of, of racial issues. And then the hope is for the Christian nationalists is that, well, if we just enact our kingdom that we think it should be right, then everybody, they'll be, it'll be right. fine. It'll be fine. Right. Um, so whereas we're saying like, no, no, hold up, hold up. We need to address these issues. There, there is systemic issues that we need to address. And, and so there, there's like a, there's a battle there 
there's an unwant to deal with it. Like, cause if we have to deal with it, then, then somehow our view of how things should go has failed. Um, and so, and then it goes all the way back to that, that theology really. It's like, well, if we have to slow down to deal with this, then Christ it's, we're just delaying Christ coming back. Um, so let's not deal with it. Let's let's, and then let's, let's be racist and evil to the people that are actually trying to address those issues. Let's try to squash them, call them names. I, I woke up this morning and saw William Wolf, like calling people names, you know, like really racist microaggressions towards people who are trying to address racism. And it's just like, you know, and pe- people that make fun of wokeism, you know, all the whole nine. It's just like, it's fascinating. You said something that, that like triggered, I don't know if you, had this growing up in in your um, primo rapture mindset and, and what was said, but you know the the question was, well, what about those people who you know don't hear the gospel? You know, if the if the big thing is praying the prayer and getting people saved, you know, then then the inevitable question is, what if the rapture happens before somebody who hasn't heard? What does God do? You know. Uh, well, we can't say in our theology, then we couldn't say, well, God would just let them in if they haven't prayed a prayer. So the, the way to get around that was Jesus will not return until everybody who will be saved has been saved. You know, until everybody has had a chance to hear the gospel and accept it. Well, you know, we didn't think about the fact that people are being born every day. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> every single moment there's going to be a new person who hits the age of accountability every second. So there's never going to be a moment where that doesn't happen. But we didn't think through it logically. All of that to say, though. So I can see, again, the pre-mill rapture, just pray a prayer, folks, jumping in that pipeline to post-mill because it doesn't have that mousetrap of everybody having to hear the gospel before Jesus can return. It's just like, okay, well, let's just make make it a Christian nation now. Make the world Christian. Let's just not care. Let's just not wait. Let's just get there. And so it, it removes that burden of everybody having to pray a prayer by just enforcing it through Christian Sharia law. Forgive the uh, That's a good point. For, for, forgive me, you know, hitting upside the face Muslims, which, you know, I've, I've said this a few times to you. Um, I, I think Christians need to apologize to the Islamic community. Uh, we, we talk about their radicalism and extremism and Sharia law, and I don't think we have anything uh, <laughs> that is any better than 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 anything that is going on in, in the Muslim community. Uh, we get a lot of egg on our face. Yeah, no, we, we are at fault. Um, yeah, we do the same things they do all the way to jihad, right? We, we fight, we fight righteous wars all the time, even though Donald said he's kept us out of war for decades. <laughs> decades. The two years I was in office, which he was in four, but the two years I was in office were, were the most peaceful years that we have ever known as a nation. Most economically, um, the, the economically best years we've done. I'm like, dude. Yeah, I mean, who are we kidding? We, we do the same dude. thing. We, we, we are the same. And it's been that way for a long time, right? Like Islam versus Christianity, even, even Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem's very important to 
post-millennial and pre-millennial. That's why Israel, like the, the views that politicians have on Israel is so important to those uh, tribes of theology. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I grew up, my dad got uh, a, uh, a periodical on Israel and, and, and how, you know, just the end times and, and Israel being the center, Jerusalem being the center, like that's so foundational as well. Like it, I joke sometimes with people that Israel is the 50, 51st state. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. You, you have, right? Yeah, I have. Like it, it's, it's very Americanized in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's why it's just so it's Israel is so important to our theology. And so as a result, it's very important to our national um, political landscape. Even though, in many senses, Israel can be very evil uh, and, and enact very evil policies to the Palestinians and and be very ruthless, uh, but Israel is very important to to our theology. So, yeah, it is, uh, especially our end times theologies, which again, uh, our end time theology determines everything else. I mean, anti-Semitism has been coming up a lot. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that, but I, I think that's connected to, to a lot of our end times theology is, um, especially dispensationalism, you know, the premillennial uh, dispensational view that we've replaced Israel, that, you know, Jewish people don't matter to God anymore, which is... Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, don't talk about that online. Yeah. yeah, the idea um, that we, we were grafted in even as offensive, you know, to Jewish people. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's sad, right? It's sad. Even though we we serve a, a Jewish God, but let's not talk about that. He's not American. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think we gave him honorary citizenship, right? Dual, dual citizenship. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about that. I will, I legit as a kid, you know, when you get bored in the pews and you're just flipping through the Bibles and hymnals, like I legit was looking for America in the Bible. I thought it was there. I legit did it. Some people Sunday. make it fit into symbolism in Revelation and others look at the symbolism in Revelation and say they don't see America there. Yeah. Maybe that's why they're trying to make us a Christian nation. <laughs> If we don't need re- we don't need revelation if we end run it. Yeah, it's true. We'll just uh, we'll take care of all the natural disasters and all the wars. We'll end them all through through war. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the Christian nationalist stuff. It sounds very very Roman to me. Very uh, you know, Pax Romana. It's uh, you know, was it peace through violence? Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I, I think that's very wise, very insightful. I, I agree, absolutely. And even a lot of the you know rhetoric and support you know that they're using for promoting Christian nationalism these days comes actually right out of. Roman thought and, and Aristotle and, and this idea of empire and Caesars and, and and Christian princes and 
Yeah, I, I think there's a <laughs> there, there's an important connection there that is, I think, desired in the way they frame it, Christian nationalism as being a, around this idea of Rome and what Rome brought. And maybe they forget that it was Rome who crucified Jesus. Yeah. Well, and Rome is, yeah, that that way of living was what Jesus was speaking out against. Um, calling us to a different way of living, which I, I, I think they see people see it. They just ignore it. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't match what they want to see done in the end. Um, so yeah, I think thinking through your theology, if you're still with us, uh, on the end times is very important. It's going to dictate how you live. And I would say if you've been in church, you've for any length of time and you haven't thought through it, you've probably been influenced in certain ways. Um, you've, you've certainly been influenced uh, culturally through the left behind stuff, uh, whether you, whether you liked it or not, like that was a huge success for pre millennials. I mean, Best-selling books, um, best you know, movies. Kurt Cameron. Boom. It's Kurt Cameron. Yeah. Nicholas Cage. It, it was talked about like a lot, right? So that's probably the prevailing view. If you haven't studied this or thought through it at all, like you're probably going to lean that way, unless your pastor that or at your church was very good about teaching other, you know, eschatologies. And so I'd encourage you to think through it. Um, I think it's an important, it's probably one of the most important kind of theologies that we have right now um, in our, where our culture's at, that we should look at, which is why I wanted to bring it up today. I thought it was important. 